Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and I am very scared of sounds in the dark. I feel like being an author automatically means that your brain goes to the worst possible thing that could be responsible for whatever's happening in your life. And that's what makes you a good author, right? Because you can come up with the worst okay. possible possible situation. But yes, I get scared at night in the dark. I feel it. Um, I'm Cameron, and I don't like wasps. They're fast, and they're angry, and I don't like them. Judgment of wasps. There's lots of judging language in that in that sentence you just said, Cameron. Wasps mm-hmm. are not people, too. Wasps are alive and should be respected. I'm going to stop now. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Erin. Um, I have a unreasonable fear of falling down the stairs, um, partly because I'm clumsy. And another, we just finished watching The Staircase on Netflix. And it's a documentary about him husband who may or may not have killed his wife and she fell down the stairs and so now every time I go down our stairs there's like a landing and you gotta like turn I know exactly where that everything is but I'm I'm unreasonably scared that I'm going to fall down the stairs (laughs) a big welcome to Erin A. Craig the author of Fantasy Horror House of Salt and Sorrows and Small Favors which is coming out it'll be next week I think when this recording July 27th yeah (laughs) Yeah. We're so excited for your new book. Would you tell us about it? Sure. Uh, so Small Figures is a prairie gothic, uh, very loose retelling of Rumpelstiltskin. Um, it's set placed in a isolated mountain town community, and it tells the story of Ellery Downing and her family of beekeepers and all of their beehives. Uh, they're not wasps. They're, they're all <laughs> happy honeybees. <laughs> and they live, so the town that they live in is very small and isolated. They require uh, lots of help from their neighbors. Everyone kind of helps and each other out and everything and when a couple of supply runs go missing um, and supplies start to run out and people start to kind of um, you know start looking out for their best interests instead of the good of the whole in the community terrible things start to happen and everyone uh, has to kind of figure out the mystery of like these creatures who have come into town and start uh, saying that they can fulfill the town's deepest desires for a very small favor (laughs) (laughs) I got to read an early copy of Small Favors, and it is super creepy and awesome and exactly what I have come to expect from Erin. I love her books. Her writing is so much fun and so creepy and makes me feel scared at night in the dark. So I we are going to talk a little bit about horror today and how you too as writers can, can execute well-done horror. If you haven't read her books, you should definitely check them out because they're very, very well done. So Erin, what is horror as a genre? It's, uh, I think there's a lot of subgenres that make up horror as like the bigger, larger thing. Um, my favorite subgenre uh, for me is like gothic horror, as evidenced in House of Salt and Sorrows and to an extent in Small Favors. Um, I really like uh, the idea that surroundings are, are just potentially terrible things that can come and kill you. <laughs> um, if it's a house, if it's a mountain town, if it's, you know, a weird field of corn, um, nature is basically always just plotting ways to kill us. Um, so horror is a, like in a broader gen thing, just things that scare you, um, whether they're reasonable fears or, you know, um, things we make up in our own heads that take on a life of its own and I think a lot of horror is us working our way through like watching bigger fears play out so we can work out our own little tiny fears um, on a more manageable level. 
Awesome. What do you think, Cameron? It looks like you had some thoughts here. Yeah, um, I think this is going to maybe some of our next question, but, you know, fear is just as much an emotion that makes up who we are as as anything else, you know, that might be more in classically enjoyable, like happiness or whatever. But, you know, if you need to, if you want to understand yourself, you need to understand what you're scared of and why. And so I think horror is super useful that way because it provides a vehicle to explore those feelings. See, I feel like horror for me is is knowing that there are lots of things inside me that make me frightened. And then horror is like the realization of those things being real. Like where I know in my head, a lot of the things that I am afraid of are not real or like the catastrophic things I can come up with, like the end of that scary sound I heard at night. I know in my head that it's not real, but in horror books, it is real. And it gets, it's like the worst iteration of what it could possibly be. We had um, Dan Wells on the podcast a couple of years ago, and he said that a lot of times horror for adults is not being in control of a situation. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I loved that as, a, as an idea. Um, so what purpose does, does horror serve? I mean, I, I think it's a way to, ex- like, that we can kind of, like, work out all of the awful things in our heads <laughs> and see it play out and, like, um, I, I saw a really interesting documentary. Um, before I was a writer, I was a stage manager and I did a lot of like classic plays and operas and things. And we were doing a production of The Balcony and it's this truly bizarre play, but it's um, partially based on this um, African tribe who once a year they become possessed. Like everyone just goes out and plans that they're going to become possessed and they get to take on all of these like things that they're scared of and affectations or, or frustrations that you know they, they don't get to normally have in their day-to-day lives and just act them out and it kind of it reminded me of the, the purge movie <laughs> in a lot of ways where you're like you can just be totally crazy and wild with zero and inhibitions and concerns about like what others are going to think of you or you know repercussions for your actions and you get all of that out of your system in one day and then you can go on with the rest of your life you know for the rest of the year until everything builds up again to that and for me I think horror is kind of like when you go and you watch a scary movie or you watch or you, you know you read these scary books it's a kind of way of exercising those demons in you and all the worries and concerns about you know, things you can't control, um, like calling them staircase, <laughs> like that. And seeing like, okay, well, if this does happen, and in like the absolutely worst possible scenario, like what if the wasps are, you know, killer African wild zombie wasp or whatever, and they really be moderately targeted here. <laughs> but like, what, you know, and you, you watch the creature feature of this version. And um, this is the worst case scenario that can happen, because, you know, Hollywood's gonna blow it up for special effects and everything and I think it's a way of like showing us that maybe the fear like while we still have the fears maybe they're not as scary as we imagine them to be um and it kind of like helps take away like ease the fears even though you're terrified and scared in the, in the moment and the movie and the book and everything um once you're through the experience I always feel like it's not as scary as I imagine it would be because I saw the worst case of it happen and we're all here hopefully at yeah, the end of it <laughs> if you could if you could face the fear in a not life-threatening situation <laughs> then you're just just by facing it consciously your brain does processing magic and then like horror <laughs> vaccination exactly, <Yes>. exactly. <laughs> 
See, I feel like watching horror does not do that for me. What it does, it stays in oh, my no. head and then my <laughs> head makes it worse and it never leaves. And so I don't usually read or watch horror. And so occasionally when I stumble into it by accident, which is what happened with House of Salt and Sorrows, I'm like, oh, this is, this is very scary. And okay. But I really loved the writing. <laughs> I really love um, the few times I do stumble into it. It makes me happy um, if it's not giving me nightmares. So how do you, how do you go about creating a horror story? I like to, I always, you know, um, I'm, I'm a very firm believer in there's zero new things under the sun. It's all just a way of how you choose to put things together and, and recreate things that have already been explored. Um, so whenever I kind of get like the seed of an idea, I always do a ton of research. And usually for me, it starts with like a lot of nonfiction stuff. And so like, Right now I'm tinkering with kind of a teen slasher, like homage to like 70s horror stuff. So I'm watching a bunch of movies and stuff to get like in the atmospheric mood, but then also going and like researching a lot of like the serial killers that these, these stories were based on. Um, and that's always like the more horrifying part of it because it actually did happen. But like I can take kind of like little impressions and smatterings of that. Um, and then a lot of my stuff uh, for me, I think atmosphere is so important with stuff. And I would I would much rather be scared by that dark thing that I think is in the shadows, maybe that's coming creeping into you know closer and closer. And um, then like Zach Nicholson running at me with an axe, which would be terrifying, but is not as scary as going to imagine is in the corner. Um, so for me, a lot of it is like the world building process and like creating the atmosphere. And so um, with House of Salt and Sorrows, uh, most of the book takes place at Highmore. Um, it's this uh, mansion on this isolated island state. A lot of my things are isolated um, <laughs> to self-contain the horror. But um, so it was a very salty and sea driven narrative. There's lots of dark corners and long hallways and echoing sounds and things like that. Because I think if you can fully uh, create this uh, very, very tangible world for your characters to be inhabiting and then try to figure out all the ways that it can go wrong and attack you and <laughs> create the terrible things to chase you. I think like that's for me, world building is, is one of the most um, fun parts of the horror building process just because it's imagining all the ways that things can go wrong within the world that you've created. With Small Favors, uh, it takes place in this very nice, happy town, uh, Amity Falls. And it, it, at surface level, it looks very idyllic. You know, there's all these farmlands and happy beekeepers and things like that. And then once um, she starts to realize, like, oh, there's these gigantic mountains that they can't easily, you know, get out of. And, oh, they're stuck with these town people who may or may not have secrets of their own that they've been harboring. Oh, there's some weird weather thrown in. Oh, now we've got a drought and there's monsters coming out of the trees and things. And like just the ways that a, a place can go wrong, I think is, is very fun to explore the, the terrifying depths. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like that slow build is so important in a horror story because I mean, like you said, it's that dark thing in the corner that scares people the most. I feel like people's imaginations almost do worse than actually seeing the real thing that is that's causing the problems. And I feel like that's something that that is handled really well in both of your books, where there are things lurking in the corners and you don't see them until the very climax of the book, where you've already built it up into your head so big that you're scared of yourself and your own brain almost more than the story itself. Um, <laughs> what do you think about that, Cameron? How do you go about building your own horror story? 
Well, it's an excellent question because I do write stuff with horror elements in it, but I don't write whole horror That's, stories. It's different, yeah. So kind of want to, I kind of want to kick that back to Aaron, maybe with a slightly different spin. It's not wasn't on the list, but I was hoping to ask you, how do you decide how grim to make the ending? Um, That's such a good question for Aaron because she likes him grim. <laughs> I do. And the book that I'm not allowed to talk about, um, my agent has it right now. And she's like, are you sure this is the ending that you want to do? And I'm like, yeah, it, it is. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be here from my editor. It's just going to let me <laughs> go and park if I want to. Um, I try... I try to think because I write uh, YA, I try to think of like what teenage Aaron would be most delighted with and go maybe a step further because teenage Erin didn't get to read a lot of the horror books that she wanted to because my mom was always like Stephen King oh no and she'd like take it away from me <laughs> um so I try to think of like a, a, a slight step further than what than what I would have enjoyed as a teenager um and like I think because it is fun to explore horror and and have like the spooky things I think it's also very important to have a happy ending of, of sorts um so I do try to make a realistically optimistic outlook on on the ending for the most part because I think I, I'm a perpetual optimist so I always believe that that good should, should, should triumph, <laughs> triumph at the end um there's only one film I think I've ever watched where the bad guy wins and I was like oh this is really interesting and then I like every other time I'm like this is terrible why did I waste my life seeing this and then like leave the movie theater sad and depressed and, and angry at everything um so I like to try to like end on a happy note of, of sorts but the how far to take it I think it just what realistically works within the story with small favors we see a town poised on the point of just complete annihilation it's set in frontier uh kind of 1880s fictional colorado town so if you are an isolated town that you know doesn't have access to medicine and bullets and all these things that you know they couldn't mass produce in a very small town setting and it, i mean that that could get pretty grim <laughs> and dark and it does just because i mean that's what realistically would happen and i, I do want to keep um, most things grounded in realism, obviously, with house, we've got gods running around and, and ghosts and things. But I, I do want to have like it grounded in a world where it's not, you know, something. And then their dragon came in and saved them. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I, I try to keep it grounded in realism, but slightly leaning toward optimism. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so, so given that you know that's the direction you're working in, do you find that uh, you need to bake in a lot of? foreshadowing so you can signpost to readers that this is grim but it's going to work out or is it more of like a surprise um, I tend to plot everything out pretty well in advance um, so I try to I like to, to do a lot of foreshadowing um, and just because of the nature of the way I, that I write usually I can be like okay at chapter you know 13 we're going to have this little breadcrumb here and here's some stuff um, with small favors there's I've, I've I try not to read reviews, but sometimes, you know, you can't help but see. But I've, I've noticed a couple of people have said, like, there's a lot of, like, it's kind of slow start to the everything. But then it ties everything, everything at the end, because the town is falling apart. Like, you need all of that stuff at the beginning in the slow build to understand, like, um, what's driving each of the characters in the town and everything. So that when it finally does unravel, 
there's a reason for it. It's not just suddenly, and then the town exploded. Um, it's, well, so-and-so is not so-and-so, and this happened because of this, and this, and this, this. Um, so I like that, I like building in the foreshadowing, and I think having, like, a really good outline of what the book is going to be, um, helps with that. Uh, with House, I think, um, the character of Fisher was a very last-minute ad. It was in one of the final revisions. He did not exist, um, up until about, I think it was, like, five or six revisions in. Um, and so that was really hard because he does serve a very big, um, messy splashy ending uh to the book and so like trying to insert something that big into something that was already kind of woven very tightly I thought it was it was a difficult revision to try to add him in so it felt believable and not just oh we added a new character in here and ta-da <laughs> Nice. Well, we are probably needing to move on to the next portion of our podcast. Are there any last thoughts that we wanted to talk about? No? Okay. In the second part of our podcast, we critique a submission from a listener. If you would like to see the text of the submission and all of our notes, you can check on our website, which if you Google, will be faster than me saying it out loud. If you would like the first chapter critique from us, you can also find our submission guidelines there. Just look up Lit Service Podcast. So a summary of this submission, a young healer finds a stranger at her apothecary who persuades her to leave the only home she's ever known to heal this very mysterious employer. What are things that we liked about this submission? I really liked, like, just, I mean, the initial concept of it. Um, I love anything with, like, healers and, like, apothecary. Um, I'm assuming it's just, she's got a lot of stuff. She talks about the different plants and the, the drops and everything that she's making. Um, that's something that's on a personal level that always appeals to me. Um, I love a good healer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I loved a lot of the elements that were introduced at the beginning. Like there's a singing forest and a mother who has inexplicably disappeared. There's hints of like witchy magic. Um, there are some great character moments like, um, Johan asks Isolde, those are the two, the, the, the boy who comes is named Johan, and then Isolde is the girl who is the main character. She, or he asks what the rest of the, or what the success of the apothecary is owed to, and she says, me, which is a really nice moment of confidence. I also um, really liked, she says that she smiles for her customers with a pleasant, engaging, and empty smile. And she also at one point says, I'm not young, I'm just short. There's lots of just really punchy, fun character moments that, to love. There's, yeah, she's got a great voice, like the the main character. They, like you can tell a lot about her just the words she uses. Um, it's a really good, strong voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a particularly good line. I think it says, "This is old. Um, this is uh, memory of her mother's voice. Uh, we are witches, half wild ourselves." Talking about how why she feels at home in the forest. And I thought that was evocative, short, punchy. So, uh, if if we're ready to move on, what are some things that might need a second look? Um, my big thing was I saw that um, at the top it said that it was uh, why a historical horror and just because I am who I am I, I never got a sense like I could tell it was in the past <laughs> I, I could tell it was some sort of historical thing because they're using you know terms like the apothecary and um, there's different references throughout about people you know being concerned about what part of the kingdom that they live in and things like that um, but I never could really feel where we were in the past it was just this nebulous void of of old timiness um and so 
I was hoping to have like some sort of more of that and some of this stuff because I couldn't tell what uh, time period we were in some of the dialogue did feel very contemporary to me um, and so it further confused me <laughs> where we were supposed to be in the past a lot of uh, with historical uh, fantasy when you're doing stuff like that it's very important to keep in mind like what the sensibilities of that time period would be and so when the stranger comes in and she immediately is like kind of rude to him but she says like obviously he's very well dressed and he has lots of money to spend it felt very strange that a younger girl would be treating an older man that way especially given that it's supposed to be sometime in the past so I, I just uh, keeping a very sharp focus on what exact time period you're working in um, it makes it clearer for the reader it, it helps uh, make character decisions and everything that was my big big note <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, there's a big difference between writing historical versus writing like fantasy, that secondary world where you can make up the rules. I noticed that as well, mm -hmm. where I, if it's taking place on Earth in the past, there are definitely some some norms being violated here. I'm not really sure when it's supposed to take place. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading is I was having a really difficult time getting a read on what the main character wanted and why. Like nothing seemed super concerning or, or interesting to her. Like we've got such cool elements. Like her mother disappeared, which matters to her because she mentions it several times, but I'm not sure how she feels about it. Or even mm -hmm. like if her mother disappeared because she left or if she disappeared because she like was abducted. It sounds like it has something to do with the forest, but I don't know if it was voluntary or not. There seemed to be clues pointing in both directions and it could go either way, which I feel like is a very important detail, especially in a first chapter where uh, the, the, the decisions that a character is making, I feel like I want them to feel important. Like the fact that she is leaving her hometown, she's never left before, she's going and doing this thing. It doesn't feel like a big decision to me because she's mm -hmm. like, eh. I mean, the apothecary's failing and I might as well go. He's got money. This is a cool idea. But if this is an inciting incident where we're making a big decision, like I want to know what it is that is making her make this decision and what she's leaving behind, what she's giving up. Like, why is this the inciting incident that, mm -hmm. that is forcing her to change? Like we get told that the apothecary is not making as much money. Um, as it used to and so more money would be nice um, as a, more... that's, a, that's a tell though but we don't we don't we don't see any of the consequences um, of the apothecary making less money you know when we first see her she's in the forest and she's happy it's a little weird that the plants aren't talking back like normal but <clears throat> aside from that it seems like her her life is just this you know hunky-dory routine of doing the apothecary thing and the fact that it's monetarily failing doesn't really seem to affect her very much which means the the later punch of okay i'm going to go do this other thing to make money because the apothecary is failing doesn't doesn't hit hard because we don't see the consequences of her not doing that well and there's a difference between the apothecary isn't doing great and the apothecary is failing and i need to do something or we will die you know yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> so yeah, it needs to the auntie needs to be apt a little <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and it, it just depends on what kind of story you're telling. We only have the first chapter, so it could be that there are different stakes and motivation that are on here, but based on what we've got here and in a first chapter, which is what an agent or an editor is going to read, it's really hard to get on board with feeling really excited about this decision because I'm not sure what's going into it. Well, especially um, especially with YA pacing, you want, you want those stakes on the first page. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. as early as possible. Um, I think... I noticed this as well, Erin. I think you mentioned something about filler words and the, the prose being a little bit heavy. 
Yeah, there's, I, I really, if you're going to do um, first person, which is, this is written in, there, there's a lot of like stage business going on. It's like, I, my nose wrinkled. Um, I'm trying to look through, but there's just a lot of stuff about where she's describing like what she's doing as her, what her body's doing, what her, you know, um, her eyes are doing. They squinted, they narrowed, like all these things. If like, if you're telling something in first person, like I want to go as deep into it. There's a reason that you chose to go first person. And so like, when I myself am going around throughout the day, like, yeah, my nose will wrinkle, but I don't stop and consider that <laughs> as like a reaction to something. And that's not to say you can't have, you know, some stage business with what the character's doing to get a better sense of what's going on. But there's so much of it in this that I'm, it's putting me outside of the character's head. And if you're using first person, like you want to be in deep as in that person's head as you can be um and getting like their reactions and thoughts and I feel like right now we're just seeing a lot of like what she physically is doing and not necessarily like what's driving her behind any of it um trying to see if it's that specific spot (laughs) like even like stuff like I jutted my chin out me she says you could have there's just there's different ways that you could show like that you're annoyed with someone than like just saying what the your body is doing in reaction to it um and I think just trying to get like deeper into her head will help up the stakes it'll help us understand like with what's going on with the apothecary like why is she so annoyed with this guy showing up early if you know the apothecary is failing and everything um I just want to see more deeper thoughts instead of what like her body is physically responding to um, with things just to get like in that really deep sense of point of view. Um, if you're going to go first person for this. I agree. I feel like there was a, I feel like as, as writers, we want to put like, there are reasons to do stage business. Like if you want to get somebody grounded in in the scene and in the area so that we know what your character's seeing and doing and whatever else, that's great. But if if there's a lot of it and it doesn't actually serve a purpose, it does feel like filler. Like there's so much you can do with blocking that tells your reader about how your character is feeling and then contributing to the bigger story of my mother is gone, the apothecary is failing. Like all of those things are such interesting emotional things, but right now the blocking is very surface level. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Um, but that's something that is, is really easy to fix and go look through. So I feel like this oh, story absolutely. has, yeah, the story has a whole lot to love and I'm really excited we get, we got to read it. Do we have any last mm-hmm. thoughts that we want to add in? I want more. You want more <laughs> One chapter story. was not enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much to this author for submitting to the podcast. We wish you the very best and we're really grateful to be able to read your work. Um, thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Thank you. We have some extra recordings coming up. So the submissions are open right now for several guests. Uh, we have Jeff Zentner coming on the show. He's the author of The Serpent King, Goodbye Days, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, and the upcoming In the Wild Light, as well as C.B. Lee and Bethany Morrow. So there are lots of authors you can submit to at the moment. Go check out our website if you'd like to know more about them. Submissions for C.B. and Bethany close on July 27th, and the submissions for Jeff close on the 29th. So get us your chapters by then. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service, and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. 
Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>